0: So what I tell clients and the phrase that I use is, here's a a calculator that will give you, you know, roughly the numbers that you're looking for, but I can't do your push-ups for you. I can guide you along the way and say, this should be able to hit this. This should be able to hit this. Your expenses should be about this, but you have to do your own analysis
1: do most agents who don't have access to the secrets that the top agents in our industry hoard to themselves, grow and prosper in today's real estate environment? That's the question. And this podcast is the answer. I'm Pat Hyman, and welcome to Real Estate Rockstars.
2: Real Estate Rockstars, this is Aaron DeMuchastegui, and I am back for today's episode the that I'm super excited about today I get to interview Avery Carl. You know, it was fun. I just got done chatting with Avery and we got to talk about that she's been a long time, you know, fan of the podcast. We actually have a lot in common, some you know, some relationships with go and things like that that we didn't realize ahead of time uh, that we had. And so we're t- but today we get to talk about kind of everything real estate. So Avery's been an agent for a few years. I'm gonna let you, I'm going to let her tell the story, but when you get to hear some of her revenue, volume stuff that she's done and kind of her skill set. Uh, I think you guys are really going to love it. And I think it's really going to go in line with a lot of the interviews we've done in the past month where people have talked about, you know, if you can find an investor and have them become your client, that can be a repeat investor and like find a niche for them. She's got some really unique stuff that I think she's going to be really skilled with. So uh, Avery, thanks for coming on.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. Like I said, I'm a super fan.
2: The, I love it when people that listen to the podcast come on here. So any of you listeners that are out there, the, anytime you guys message me and tell me we had a good episode, the, I always ask, like, when are you going to get on the podcast? So keep crushing it out there. And, you know, so many of you guys, if you're listening now and you've thought, uh, you know, put that on your goal list, make sure you get it on there. We want to get you on the podcast to share what you've learned with everybody else. So, the, so when did you get your real estate license, Avery?
0: I got my real estate license at the beginning of 2017. So it hasn't been too terribly long.
2: All right. So the so not too long. And how much volume did you do last year as an agent?
0: Last year, without the team, because I kind of started my team about midway through last year. myself personally, I did sixty million.
2: So you did sixty million. You got your license in twenty seventeen, and you did sixty million in revenue last year. I mean, so listeners right now, that is the big thing that says, "All right, let's buckle up." Right, let's buckle up and listen because the, if you're just getting your license now and you're hoping that two or three years from now you can have a 60 million dollar volume year that that would be that seems like a really really crazy goal, but Avery's done it in just a few years and we're going to get to dial into that. So Avery, how did you get into real estate?
0: I got into real estate from the investing side. I which is going to sound really similar to any real estate investor story. I had a corporate gig as a marketing manager was making $37,000 a year. Uh, my husband and I decided to, quote, buy a rental property. We didn't even know it was called real estate investing back then. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so we bought one and we were living in Nashville at the time and uh, the cash flow on that was really great. So after that first one, we said, oh, well, let's start educating ourselves on this so we can do this again. And we only had one down payment worth of money to, to put down on anything. And so we thought, how can we best capitalize this to make the most money off of it so that we can go buy more and more and scale this business faster and so we, we settled on doing an Airbnb uh, again living in Nashville at the time we did not want to invest in an Airbnb in Nashville the regulations are terrible they're changing all the time so Felt like that wasn't a safe bet. So we went a few hours east of Nashville to the Gatlinburg Pigeon Forge area, the Smok- Smoky Mountain National Park, because that's what people do when they go there is they rent a privately owned cabin on an overnight basis. So the we figured, oh, the regulations are probably easier to deal with here. So we bought one there, quickly scaled that into five over that next year. And then that has become 28 units over the past three or four years. So uh, I got into having my license because when we were buying those short-term rentals, especially in that market, I had a lot of questions about return on investment and you know the numbers and, and how to manage these things that none of the agents that I found could answer. So we kind of had to figure it out all ourselves. And then I got my license just to do our deals and then It grew from that to friends saying, oh, how much are you making on this? How do you do this? I want to buy one. And then it just became a business from there.
2: Yeah. And so has your niche always been, you know, kind of selling Airbnb investments to to people or is there, do you do a lot of regular transactions as well?
0: Uh, I tried to fight it being only the Airbnbs at first because, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, when you first start, you're like, oh, you know, I need to take all the business that I can. I need to get business from everywhere. And uh, my pipeline just kept being short term rental investors. So I finally stopped fighting it and just said, this is all I'm doing now. This is clearly what I need to be doing. And so I stopped taking primary home investors. I don't even take long term rental investors anymore. Only short term rental investors that are really looking for vacation rentals, which we can get into the difference between what I call a vacation rental and just a regular Airbnb in a minute. Mm-hmm. But uh, just only vacation rental investors. And uh, it, that's my business took off once I started cutting out, just taking anybody.
2: It's almost like the four hour work week type method. Like I remember when I first read that and Tim Ferriss said, no, you need to focus on the things that make you the most money. They said 80% of your income comes from like 20% of your effort. So you were trying to do everything. And then somewhere along the line, you realized, well, just Airbnbs, you were getting more, more money for the amount of time you were spending. It was easier for you to get the deal, easier for you to get the client. So then that became your focus niche. So when, what year did you buy your first one?
0: Uh, very like probably mid 2016 was when I bought my first one.
2: All right. So you had your first one and then you were interviewing agents. We, I mean, we hear this story a lot on here of people that they, you know, they were trying to buy houses. There wasn't a good agent there. They weren't able to find a good agent. Like, and this was just a few years ago too. So everybody out there, whether you're, you know, new as an agent or you've been an agent for a few years, it's remembering that there are plenty of places. There are plenty of people out there that still are struggling to find a good agent right? So if you can just bring the skills and provide the value, you will stand up because we do hear the story so much of investors saying, hey, I was asking the questions. Nobody had the answer. I had to find the answer myself anyway. So why was I paying an agent? And then also if you're trying to, I mean, your primary goal was to be able to form investments yourself. And so, you know, being an agent, it's it's the easiest way to generate cash flow. But then when you would buy the properties, would you use your buyer's agent commission as a discount or would you use it as a down payment for the property?
0: I don't use it as a discount. I I take that commission and, you know, just kind of, it cancels out the down payment. So I haven't leveraged that as a discount because I'd rather have the cash in hand than I would, you know, a $12,000 discount or $20,000 discount amortized over 30 years. That doesn't do me any favors. So I take the cash.
2: I think that's smart. And I think agents out there, as you're thinking about that, I remember early on in real estate, we were thinking about that, right? Like discounted buyer's agent commissions or being able to say, Hey, because I'm, because I have my license, why don't you sell it to me for less? And the, and I don't think that's the right way to do it. I think, I think uh, Avery's right in the sense that no, you take the cash uh, because that increases your, it increases everything. It increases your gross revenue when you're trying to get approved for loans later, increases the cash that you have for that down payment, especially if you're going to start getting loans on that. So, Rockstar Nation. This is Aaron Amuchasteghi. Hey, I hate to interrupt the current podcast that you're listening to, but I am so excited to share this with you. I just finished interviewing the original host of this podcast, my good friend, Pat Yeah, I got to talk to Pat about how he started his real estate career and a whole bunch of tips and tactics that he used to be successful. So if you haven't listened to it yet, go check out State of the Market number 49, on there I get to talk to Pat about all those different things you know and in there too he talked a lot about his six steps for seven figures book and training program that he built over the last couple years and I realized I haven't done a good enough job of reminding all of you lately about all of the resources that we've built for you out there so if you want to check out Pat's course We've got like a three minute summary video when you go to it. It includes so many easy to follow tips that you can follow on it like a day to day basis. You get email reminders, all sorts of different things that come with that course. You find that, you go to rebusuniversity.com, R E B U S, rebusuniversity.com look at courses you can find the six steps for seven figures book and really there's a whole bunch of other courses in there too our normal prices used to be fifteen hundred or two thousand dollars a course these are real deal professional courses but now uh, during quarantine a lot of them are priced down to like 90 bucks 95 bucks so we've slashed the prices going know right now is a time for everybody to be focusing on growth and education especially while they're feeling like they don't have as much to do and if you go in there and you figure like, like there's a lot of different courses you want maybe you don't want to buy the a la carte, you can go to futureofrealestatetraining.com and you can get access to all of our different courses for 97 bucks a month. I think there's a discount on there if you go a year or there's even like a lifetime option that you can pay. You get access to every course we've ever put on Rebus University for as long as we have it. So go check out those options, Rebus University or futureofrealestatetraining.com. All right, back to your podcast. Sorry for the interruption. why do you think Nashville is so anti Airbnb? Cause you talked about that's where you live. You wanted to do it there, but you know, and I've got uh, you know a friend of mine has a bunch of rentals out there. And for him, he would just like, he was paying a daily fine for a while. And he was like, well, the daily fine, I still make enough money to, to make up for it. But the, why, why are they so anti Airbnb and a place like the cabin three hours East would not be?
0: That's a really good question. And that's kind of why, Uh, once, Once we got really established in the Smoky Mountain area, that's why I then chose Destin and Panama City, Florida, as my next office to open, and then Gulf Shores, Alabama, which is just really down the road from Destin, as my third, because these are what I would call true, mature vacation rental markets. And this is kind of the difference from what I was talking about earlier, the difference between just an Airbnb and a vacation rental. So these are markets where it has been the norm for vacationers to stay in a single family home overnight you know on vacation for decades like well before Airbnb even before the internet in a lot of these cases where somewhere like Nashville that's what i would call an Airbnb market so those vacation rental markets are what i would call vacation rentals where people have always stayed in the single family homes that are privately owned not a hotel whereas Nashville It's a metro area and Airbnb is kind of a new thing as of the past 15 years. So people had always stayed in hotels until 10, 15 years ago when VRBO and Airbnb kind of ramped up and now you have hotels, you know, big hotel money getting annoyed with losing some of the market share. You have, uh, you know, people going in and buying properties in what used to be quiet neighborhoods and turning them into you know, essentially hotels and the neighbors get annoyed with that. So when it hasn't been the norm and it's kind of a new thing, you run into all these clashes and the hotel lobbyists are really the big player in the metro areas as far as anti-short-term rental regulations because they've lost a lot of market share. So they're trying to make that go away. So that coupled with disgruntled neighbors and then the fact that the prices have shot up in these metro markets because of the premium that the airbnb properties are being sold for, which is making it unaffordable for the permanent residents in those areas. So you just have a lot of different things in the metro markets that are driving anti-short-term rental regulations, whereas in the regional drivable vacation rental markets, there really is no industry other than tourism. So it would be really, really detrimental for the local economies to regulate against short-term rentals because there's just really no hotel presence to lobby against it.
2: That makes a lot of sense. So the so one of the things that Avery said there is there's a difference between an Airbnb of a normal house in a normal neighborhood that you also rent. Uh, And there's a difference between a vacation rental area where there's a bunch of that. So like in Northern California, it's like Lake Tahoe. There's a bunch of cabins on Lake Tahoe that people go to for the night, for the weekend, for everything. This place that's a few hours east of Nashville, that's normal. But in Nashville, so Nashville is a popular place for people to go party and go for bachelor and bachelorette parties and go hang out. And so, and I think one of the other things that happens with Airbnbs is they're more valuable if you have more bedrooms. So in a normal neighborhood, you've now got, you know, a four or five, six bedroom house. People are remodeling them to add beds. And so there's a bunch of people there. And even when I went and stayed at my buddy's Airbnb in Nashville, there was like no driveway, right? So it could, like up to eight people could stay there and there's no driveway. And so that means whenever eight people were staying there, man, that street was just going to be packed. And so I could see the neighbors going, hey, this sucks. I live in a very normal neighborhood, you know, a 10 minute drive from downtown Nashville why am I dealing with that? So I think that is a very clear distinction. And I have two of those, right? So I've got, I've got one of each side. So I have an Airbnb in Southern Oregon um, that's at a running wide resort, right? So it's like a vacation rental property where people go stay there for a few days or a week. And it's, there's also a lodge and a hotel there. But they were built in order to be kind of vacation rentals. Right? They, were, they were built for people. Some people live there full time, but most of the people are coming and going. And so with that, there are a lot less complaints too. There's, there's less complaints of people saying, hey, people are partying because they know that people are going to those resorts and going to the lake to go have a fun time and go you know, have a good time. So there's going to be a lot less complaints from neighbors uh, with that. Whereas I also have an Airbnb in a normal neighborhood. Now it's on a, it's on a bunch of acreage and it's big and, and people do company retreats there, but every once in a while you do, get a complaint because a party, you know, runs too loud and people that live there aren't living there for that reason. And so it's, um, so I totally, so when you were first saying, you know, Airbnb versus vacation, I wasn't sure where you were going with that. And, and now that makes a lot of sense. So you focus yourself on vacation rental areas, right? You, do, you don't do Airbnbs in a normal town and normal city.
0: Right, right. We don't invest in those. And I don't even take clients like I used to. So we were living in Gatlinburg for a little while now we're in uh, Destin, Florida. And I used to have a t- part of my team in Nashville to do short-term rentals there. And it just got to be too much of a pain with, with all the regulations. Like I would have people get under contract on something that was pre-construction that's going to be finished next year. As of right now, it's they're selling it as these are Airbnb properties. These are built specifically to be Airbnbs. And then by the time it's completed, it's not allowed to be an Airbnb anymore because things have changed with the city council. So I just, you know, we just cut that whole part out of our business because the metro Airbnb thing is just such a, a hard thing to keep up with.
2: such is about, I mean, one of the things that I think everyone learned in COVID was that you can't have all your eggs in one basket right? You got to have a, you got to have kind of a backup plan with stuff because there's certain industries that have flourished and Airbnb and vacation rental areas has seemed to flourish because uh, especially our, ours on the West coast are doing fantastic because hotels are closed in San Francisco. So people want to drive to a place where there's a pool and they can go get together with other families and, and have some space. And so some industries have flourished, but then having a backup plan, right? So I, I, I know a lot of people too, that kind of bought Airbnbs in downtown Austin, in you know downtown Waco, downtown Nashville, with the idea that hey, this house would normally rent for fifteen hundred a month, but as an Airbnb, we can make twenty five hundred a month on it, and so we'll go ahead and pay you know pay the the premium, but now if Airbnb gets shut down or regulation happens and they can only rent it for fifteen hundred a month, it doesn't even cover the debt service, right? So it becomes a bad investment instead of a good investment. Do you have a so? I would say when people look at Airbnbs, like the backup plan is, and if Airbnb shuts down, what does it rent for? Do you have a backup plan for vacation rentals that are these cabins by the lake? Is there a backup plan if something did happen there?
0: So my backup plan is cash reserves and then I have a diverse portfolio. So six of my 28 properties are short-term rentals. The rest are just regular long-term rentals, you know, six, 700 100 bucks a month. Because at the end of the day, you know, if the world falls down, sky falls, whatever, I mixed my euphemisms there. Whatever, people are always going to need a six, seven hundred dollar a month place to live. So we have those, and now our buying strategy is kind of you know one vacation rental, then ten units of long term rentals, and then so the vacation rentals make so much money that we use the heavy cash flow from those to go buy more traditional long term rentals. So my backup plan is really just having a diverse enough portfolio that if something happens to the tourism industry, that it's not going to sink me. And if something happens to, you know, the long-term rental industry, then it's, it's not going to sink me either.
2: Yeah. And that's, it's great advice for anyone as they start to get into investing to be, uh, to be diversified with that. The, I mean, commercial uh, hotel invest. there's been a lot of, I think industrial commercial hotels have been hit the hardest through quarantine. You know, retail where there's restaurants been hit the hardest through quarantine. Uh, single family real estate seems like it's doing great. Apartments seem to be doing great. You know, Airbnb seem to be doing great. And so depending, I guess depending on the area. There are right. less people coming to downtown Waco right now because Magnolia's closed. Everybody <laughs> goes goes travels to Waco to go see Chip and Gaines place at Magnolia. Well that's been closed for a few months and so now nobody wants to go to Waco. They want to wait till that opens up again. And so you never know. What a strange, strange world we live in with that. <laughs> Rockstar Nation. This is Aaron Amuchastegui. Hey, I hate to interrupt the current podcast that you're listening to, but I am so excited to share this with you. I just finished interviewing the original host of this podcast, my good friend, Pat you know, I got to talk to Pat about how he started his real estate career and a whole bunch of tips and tactics that he used to be successful. So if you haven't listened to it yet, go check out State of the Market number 49. On there, I get to talk to Pat about all those different things. You know, And in there too, he talked a lot about his six steps for seven figures book, and training program that he built over the last couple of years, and I realized I haven't done a good enough job of reminding all of you lately about all of the resources that we've built for you out there. So if you want to check out Pat's course, we've got like a three-minute summary video when you go to it. It includes so many easy-to-follow tips that you can follow on it, like a day-to-day basis. You can email reminders, all sorts of different things that come with that course. If you find that you go to RebusUniversity.com. R-E-B-U-S. RebusUniversity.com. Look at courses. You can find the six steps for seven figures book. And really there's a whole bunch of other courses in there too. Our normal prices used to be $1,500 or $2,000 a course. These are real deal professional courses, but now uh, during quarantine, a lot of them are priced down to like 90 bucks, 95 bucks. So we've slashed the prices coming in right now is a time for everybody to be focusing on growth and education, especially while they're feeling like they don't have as much to do. And if you go in there and you figure like, like there's a lot of different courses you want, maybe you don't want to buy the a la carte, you can go to futureofrealestatetraining.com and you can get access to all of our different courses for 97 bucks a month. I think there's a discount on there if you go a year or there's even like a lifetime option that you can pay. You get access to every course we've ever put on Rebus University for as long as we have it. So go check out those options, Rebus University or futureofrealestatetraining.com. All right, back to your podcast. Sorry for the interruption. So you talked about, you know, when you were looking at, at to go find your first investment properties, you would ask questions to the agents. They didn't know any of the answers. Now that's what you provide to your prospective investors. So if somebody that's listening right now wants to go do that, they want to go find some vacation rentals and present them to an investor. What's the info that they should find and be ready to present to an investor? And how do they know if it's a good deal?
0: Okay. That's an awesome question. So I would first take a look at what markets are around you that are drivable because just because it's drivable and remote does that, and it might be fun to go there does not mean that market is going to be a good investment. So, uh, I mean, this is going to sound silly, but Google's a really good place to start because if you just take a look at the best places to invest in short-term rentals, well, Gatlinburg is number one on that list. In, on a lot of lists because we get 13 million visitors a year to the Smoky Mountain National Park. Almost every single one of them is staying in a short-term rental, not in a hotel. So you want to start with that kind, that kind of, you know, bigger picture data, and then uh, you can drill down uh, further into like price per night, what, what the average price per night is, average occupancy rate. There's a few places you can get that. Uh, i I trust the bigger national property managers a lot more than I do the local regional guys, because they just have so much more access. A lot of them are venture capitalists backed. So they have a lot more access to, you know, big data and good good data and machine learning on these things than just the local guys. But uh, AirDNA is another uh, really accessible tool for us to be able to go and just look at, okay, this is what the average price per night is for a two bedroom in this market. This is the average occupancy rate. And their data is not perfect, but it's pretty good and cost effective. So, uh, really, you just want to start with all these data points. The so you can get projections from the big national property managers, AirDNA, and then just going on the the sites like Airbnb and VRBO and looking at what what the listings on there look like. What do their calendars look like? How booked are they? How far out? are they booked? Things like that. So, you know, you want to start there and then you can kind of work down into the more granular data. Like what are the expenses? Uh, you know, how much does, does everything here have hot tubs? How much is that? Are there any extra expenses that you wouldn't think about? Like in my market, pretty much everything's on a well. People don't really think about wells that, you know, if they live in like a big city uh, and yeah. it, there's not really, there's not a lot of expense to deal with with the well. You just have to Change the filter once a month. So, uh, you know, you know, start with the big data, the market-wide data, and then drill down into the individual properties.
2: Yeah, I was on a I was on a short-term rental panel. It was like a three-hour panel a few weeks ago with the founder of AirDNA and and uh, among a bunch of other people. And they talked about at the beginning that you know, the data just wasn't out there, and they just went on combining it. But they're combining it the same way that you're talking about doing it manually, right? So they can so you can buy services like that, pay for services like that. I like to look at it um, when when we got to analyze ours, we went through a similar sort of thing. So agents out there, if you've never looked at an Airbnb or a rental, it's kind of like doing a CMA, right? So when you're going to buy a house, you go see what did the houses that look just like this sell for right? And you go, okay, the ones that look just like this sold for 180,000. So we're going to list this one at 180,000. You're essentially looking at comps. Um, if you're going to buy a house for a rental investment, you do the same thing. You go look at comps and you can go into Zillow and, and see what recently, what's listed for rent right now in that neighborhood. Does it look like mine? Is it, you know, is it the same sort of floor plan? And if, and if that one is listed for rent for 1500 and next week it's rented out, then that's a good price. But if it's been listed for 1500 for six months, then you can tell yourself that you're probably going to have to list for less. When you go to the Airbnb analysis, it's similar. Um, one of the things that, that Avery mentioned that I think is really cool is before I bought the one at the Running Y, I went into Airbnb and I looked in that neighborhood. And because there's a bunch of houses that were the exact same house, right? There were condos that were built as vacation rentals. So you could click at all of them and say, what's this, one, this, what's this person's average price? And then you could say, see their calendar and you can look at their calendar next month and go, okay, here's how many days they have booked. So when she's talking about you know, how to analyze that, like, what's our income for that? First, you're going to look at, you know, here's a similar one, and it actually rented for 20 days last month and 20 days next month. You're like, okay, so that's top line. It rents for $200 a night. So you go, okay, it's $4,000 at the top. And then you have to kind of look at it and say, well, how many guests did I have? If I had, you know, eight guests in that, that's going to be. I'm going to have to get it cleaned for 150 bucks every time. So then I have to deduct a thousand dollars out of the, the top line for cleaning. And then you've got your, the stuff that you don't normally have on a, on a, on a rental is you got to pay for internet. You got to pay for utilities. You might have to pay for the hot tub, things like that. So you start to look at that and then you can back into it and go, okay, if I do, if I do it like these people did, and I have similar expenses to that, I can bring in the $2,000 a month. And so I can pay this much for it. So when you're Anything that, would you, would you say that that was a a decent way to analyze it? Anything that I missed, anything that you look at uh, in your numbers that I, that I had forgot to mention there?
0: No, I think you pretty much hit everything.
2: That's, that's great. So the, so what sort of return are you looking for? So when you go look at that and you go, okay, here's a house, it has the potential of making 2000 a month. What return are you, how much will you pay for that? How much would you recommend to your, your clients to pay for that?
0: Well, it just depends on the property. So in the markets that I'm in, the four bedrooms and up have a significantly higher return on investment than the three and below. Okay. So, you know, that's gonna those are going to be doing a lot higher than, than 2000 a month. But you want to be able to hit, at the very least, a 15% cash on cash return. So for the non-investor agents that are listening to that, the money you put down at the front versus the money you end up with after all the expenses at the end of the year, uh, you want that to be 15% or better. But I mean, um, 20 to, I mean, sometimes even up to in the f- above 40% is totally attainable in the markets that I'm in. I mean, that's not sitting out there on the MLS and every single property and hey, just waiting. Hard. Yeah, yeah. You got to wait and you kind of got to gotta watch for it and you have to jump on it and be ready when it comes. But it, they, they pop up all the time.
2: And when you're saying 15% cash on cash, is that net is that your, your, so that's after you pay your cleaners and your, and your changeover fee, you want to, so that's a big difference between normal rentals, right? So I would say Airbnb investments are riskier than single family Right, but the right. but with the return that Avery's talking about here, a fifteen percent cash on cash return for our single family stuff, we're looking at like a six to eight percent cash on cash return. Right after all expenses, if we buy a house for a hundred thousand dollars, at the end of the year, we want to have have made six or eight thousand um, dollars. That's a good safe return. It's you know it's really easy to see. There's not a lot of work involved of moving stuff in and out. you know other than n- normal landlord stuff. Airbnb is more work. It's more active, uh, but that return is much higher. One of the big differences that I was, I was learning in Airbnbs that I think, you know, and, and maybe you have some stories about this, is it really is a service industry, right? So I was, as a, as a real estate investor, going into that was much n- newer when you're like, actually, you know, if you have a rental property and somebody you know, calls you at 9 o'clock on a Friday night about the air conditioning being out, you can schedule somebody for Saturday, Sunday or Monday. I mean you could say like hey this is the emergency guys can't get there till Monday. I'm sorry. If that happens on an Airbnb, it's like a huge deal, right? No somebody doesn't have air air conditioning at their Airbnb, like you've got to rent a portable machine to come on the weekends or you're going to get a lower return. Is that accurate? Do you have similar feelings with it? The uh, you know, is it? Do you live and die by the by the reviews that people give you?
0: You do live and die by the reviews, and uh, so what we do. And I think that's a big limiting belief that a lot of people have about doing short term rentals is they think they're going to get those calls every night in the middle of the night, and they're never going to be able to sleep. And that's just you know, it doesn't happen nearly as much as people think that it is going to like, is it going to interrupt your dinner at some point? Yes, probably. But we don't get those kinds of calls. I mean, across six properties in five years of doing it, it's probably happens like, I mean, twice a year, maybe. So what we do is we, uh, if we can't fix it in one or two phone calls in like 20 minutes, then we offer a refund for those nights and, you know, say, okay, you know, we can't get anybody right now, but we're happy to refund you for these nights. And uh, we try to just fix it that way. We would rather them leave happy than sit there and, and stew and be mad at us for the next two days because we can't fix the problem. But it's, it's pretty rare that that comes up, but that is something that you have to deal with because it is a review based business.
2: So when you're, when you go present those deals to your investors, so you go find one and I mean, now you probably want to, you want to keep a lot of them, but, but the, but you still have plenty that you find and you go bring to your customers as an agent. So you go present it to your customer and say, hey, here's an opportunity for an Airbnb investment or they probably came to you and said, hey, I wanna buy an Airbnb. And you're like, okay, here's a good one. And this one will give you a 15% return and you show them all the numbers. You should get 10 people a month. You should get to do this and here's your projected return.
0: So I have a calculator that I built around the markets that I have to help with that. Mm -hmm. But I have found it's best and actually David Green said this on our mastermind the other day. My spreadsheets are built to spit out the data the way my brain works and your brain doesn't necessarily work the same way that mine does. So what I tell clients and the phrase that I use is here's a a calculator that will give you, you know, roughly the numbers that you're looking for, but I can't do your push-ups for you. I can guide you along the way and say, this should be able to hit this. This should be able to hit this. Your expenses should be about this, but you have to do your own analysis because I found when I was doing all of that for for all the clients, A, it sucked all the time out of my day. B, it set them up to expect me to do every single thing for them and like feed them dinner at night and sleep in the bed with them every night. So um, you do want to kind of teach them, especially as you get to be higher volume, how to analyze their own so that they're not expecting you. Because when, when you get really high volume, you can't just sit there and analyze everything all day. And then you know there's always going to be the people that their numbers didn't hit the exact penny that your number on the spreadsheet did, so they're gonna come back and yell at you later. So you wanna kind of coach them on how to analyze, say, hey, this is how you do it, this, and then give them the rough numbers and let them do their own push-ups, so to speak.
2: What percentage percentage of your customers buy more than one from you? They come back and have you do another one?
0: Probably 70, I would say. So
2: like 70. So that was, you know, the Adam Whitmire and Jared, Jared Garfield, when I talked to them a few weeks ago, they talked about investors as clients as that, right? So if you if you are if you help someone buy or sell their home, the the their your their plot probably your client for life. And every five or ten years, you could probably get a, do another deal with them. Uh, an investor client is different. You could be doing a couple of deals a year with them, or a deal every year with them. And so that's one of the one of the interesting things about by having investor clients as at least part of your niche. Uh, in real estate can really lead to you know return volume. It's always tough to get that first lead, get that first customer. Avery's gotten that niche and that helps. And then she has those people return 70% coming back. I'm not surprised by that number. I, I think that's really common with investors, but it really goes to show what's there uh, and the opportunity. Do they ever ask you to manage it themselves or are most of them excited about starting to manage their own Airbnbs?
0: I get that question every now and then, but it's different with long-term rentals because most of my clients are coming from a place of having had long-term rentals before. Uh, having a property manager for long-term rentals, it's only 10%, you know, 10% of 700 bucks a month is not that much, but the standard for short-term rentals is at least 20%. And if you've got a property that's gross, I mean, it's even up to 40% in some markets. So if you've got a property that's grossing $100,000 and you're paying 20%, that's you know, that's a lot of money to be paying someone. So it's, it sucks a lot of the cash flow out of the deal. So what I do as my value add as an agent, which, cause you know, people are like with agents, it, a lot of them don't see the value in us. They're like, you know, they're all the same. They're used car salesmen. They're like bookies or whatever, you know, sleaze, uh, so the way that I set myself apart and value add is I teach all my clients how to do it, how to self-manage from wherever they live. I, we, we have a guy in our office that that's what he does is he shows our clients how to run their Airbnbs, the automation tools. We get you set up with, with uh, vendors and everybody that you need to be able to make that money yourself from your iPhone so that you don't have to pay somebody 20000 a year to do it. And you could take that 20000 and go buy more real estate with it. So yeah. that's what we do.
2: I'd love to get some uh, some of those tools. Did, did Curtis ask you about putting something in our agent toolbox uh, yes. to provide for people? Did you have a, something that you'd be able to provide in that?
0: Yes, I am going to provide my uh, short-term rental calculator.
2: That is awesome. Okay. That's what I, I, yeah. I was hoping you were going to say that. So the, <laughs> uh, as you were going through that, I was thinking that would be a great thing for our agents. You can always go to the toolbox and get that stuff and you can do some of this analysis and maybe provide some of that same value to your prospective clients that that Avery's doing. So tell us about your team. So you are the short-term shop broker with EXP and you're in like three different states right now. How, how big is your team? And I think you said you did 60 million last year. How much is the team doing and, the, and what's that experience like?
0: Awesome. So uh, I have six agents in the Smoky Mountain market right now. I've got two in Destin and Panama City Beach, Panhandle, Florida. I've got one in Gulf Shores, Alabama. Uh, looking to expand to the Carolina beaches and then the North Carolina side of the Smoky Mountains over the next year. So any agents that are in those markets, hit me up. I need to hire you.
2: <laughs> yeah, the uh, and, and she's serious too. I know Avery's team is growing. So if you're looking at at trying to get into this in any of those different areas, I'm sure she can teach you a lot about Airbnb stuff and be able to keep you busy so $60 million in 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 gross last year, what's the average price of a house?
0: Average price point is about 400 across the board in these markets. Uh, you know, you get a lot of like two-bedroom condos and stuff, but then you get a lot of, we've actually seen in the past year a big gain in investors who want to go buy the big, you know, $800,000 properties too. So that's growing all the time.
2: Yeah, it's uh so what was your so during COVID and quarantine and all the the craziness what did you see with your investments during that time and what's your long-term outlook for vacation rentals?
0: Also a really good qu- question. So March and April, you know, the calendars completely cleared. Yeah, it didn't Nobody, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that mm-hmm. didn't count. It didn't happen. And March and April was canceled. Uh, it, so, was canceled. <laughs> it was canceled. It was canceled for Netflix binging. Yeah. So, you know, everybody, every market was, was that way. And as soon as the, we were able to break even, honestly, though, because, uh, you know, as people that live in big metro areas that are drivable to our markets that maybe live in a small condo saw, oh, I'm going to be working from home for a month. I don't want to sit in my small condo. I want to come rent your cabin in the woods for two weeks and work from there. So we actually did break even those two months without having to dip into any cash reserves on our Airbnbs. But once everything started opening back up, the tourists just like kicked the doors back in and they are, they came back with a vengeance. I mean, we would be a hundred percent booked right now anyway, because it's summertime. But as soon as, everybody was allowed to leave their houses. We were getting higher prices per night than we've ever seen, even on holidays. And people have just, were just like, but they're busting to get out of their houses. And a, they don't want to get on planes in, in a confined space and be breathed on. And they don't want to go to big Metro areas with a whole lot of people and be breathed on with the current situation with the virus. So they're driving to wherever they can get to, to get out of their houses. And, we have strategically bought in markets that are drivable. So we really reaped the benefit of that, you know, barring any big second shutdowns, it's actually caused a boom in the markets that we're at.
2: Yeah, I've seen, I've definitely seen the same thing for those, those outskirt areas where people are trying to get there. And so I think, you know, as people are trying to, uh, thinking about investing or if in Airbnb or becoming, you know, getting into that niche or they want to start experimenting in it, I think the downtown city stuff is, it's going to be a while before we know if that's a safe investment or not. Because right now the demand to be in downtown Austin isn't the same. The demand to be in downtown Nashville isn't the same. Those are two of like the music capitals of the world and the, and all the bars and music are closed, right? Like You can't go listen to music right now. And so nobody is going to come there. But when it comes to drivable places, so places that are drivable near you know, heavily populated areas, where people can go drive to go get their vacation. I think I know my family right now is in desperate need of a vacation. They're in desperate need of going, hey, where can we go for a couple weeks? I've got four kids. We're usually traveling the world. We usually spend a couple weeks, you know, flying somewhere every month. And, you know, we haven't flown anywhere since all of this started. And we, you know, we left a vacation early for that. And so I know we've been looking like crazy for what's drivable for us. And we have not been able to find very many options uh, for for here in Austin, Texas. And so, yeah, I think there is a, a really good long-term opportunity there. What about you know real estate in general? Anything that you have seen in the last few months that you're like, wow, that's changed everything? What are some big things that you've learned through COVID and quarantine?
0: So to be honest with you, in the markets that I'm in, it really since I don't do primary homes or anything where people are, you know, having to sell because they're really getting into financial trouble. We had, you know, a dip in March and April, the The bottom of the market happened at the same time as the height of the uncertainty with COVID. And as soon as those tourists came back, the everything just went right back to normal with our sales. Uh, the, we thought we, you know, we might see a drop in prices. We did a little bit just because people were like, Oh, I, sh- I better unload this. I don't know what's going to happen. But now that the tourists are back, they've, they've stopped being as negotiable. The sellers, I, I had $3 million, which is not funny. It sucked, but $3 million in listings pulled from me at the end of April by panic sellers who at the beginning of March said, Oh my God, we need to sell. And then they're like, wait, never mind. We don't need to sell. It's making money again. So
2: yeah. yeah, they were ready to sell it. And they're like, I'm glad I didn't get an offer. The, I, know I, did a few, I know I did a few things like that. I sold a bunch of things really, really quick. And in hindsight, I was like, man, maybe I could have hung on to that. But I, I wanted to be early instead of late. And, and, and who knows, maybe it's still early. We'll get to see what happens in the world. So you're also, so I'm part of the GoBundance men's group. The, you uh, are part of the GoBundance women's group. You wanna do you want to do just a shout out for GoBundance or tell people what GoBundance is?
0: yeah yeah so uh it's I'd call it like a a club kind of yeah. of of other like minded entrepreneurs uh I'm in the women's side so it's a lot of uh you know in my pod I've got an a real estate author I've got a a a really well-known doctor who has also written books and gives all these speeches all the time and you know we just we have meetings a few times a month and just kind of bounce ideas off of each other and just support each other and then you know we have big we have really cool speakers come on zoom and and cool events and uh it's just it's been really awesome networking i've only been in it for about two and a half months now so i don't have you know like a year's worth of experience with it yet but so far it's been awesome i've I've really loved it my husband's in the men's side too
2: We'll just wait till you get to go to some of the live events. Also, the, the, our local Austin group has about 20 guys in GoBundance that are meeting up today. We're going to go okay. over kind of our end of year goals and financials and go, uh, you know, wake surfing out, out, on, out on the water too. So, go to get to have a little bit of fun out there. And then, Avery, if people want to kind of reach out to you, if they want to come find you and learn more about Airbnb stuff, or if they want to join your team, if they've realized that they're in one of those markets that you're expanding into, what's the best way for them to reach you?
0: You can find me on my website at theshorttermshop.com. My uh, my email address is right on there. Info at the short-term shop. and I also need agents in the existing markets that I'm in, so the Smoky Mountains and Destin, Panama City, and Gulf Shores, Orange Beach, Alabama. So, yeah, please reach out. <laughs>
2: Yeah, reach out to Avery. She has no shortage of deals right now. She is she is super super busy in a time when so many agents um, are having to work extra hard. So the so that is that's really really awesome news. The Avery and if, if there was one thing that someone could have told you when you first got into real estate, either as an agent or an investor, what's one thing that looking back you wish you could tell yourself now?
0: I just wish I would have started earlier. Honestly, I mean, uh, you live in Austin, sounds like so I went to school in Austin. I went to university of Texas. And I remember I was bartending at the Jackalope downtown in college. And, uh, all the, the bartenders who were older than me were buying these like $70,000 houses on the East side of Austin. And I was like, why would you do that? That's not as nice as my parents' house. That's why would you do that? And now, you know, they sold them not even three years later for like half a million. And I thought, Oh wow. If I, why was I so dumb? Why, why did I have to be like that? So I would have just told myself to pull the trigger, in both sales and in, in investing.
2: Pull the trigger. If you guys are on the fence with something about trying to figure out if this is a good industry or something good to get into, Avery says, pull the trigger. Now, Avery, that was an awesome interview. The, uh, I look forward to chatting with you again, somewhere, somewhere down the line. The uh, thanks for coming on. And uh, we hope that a lot of people reach out to you.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for having me again.
2: All right. Real estate rock stars. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. We'll be back again soon. (laughs)